This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Have you had the big talk with your family about what your wishes are for the end of your life? Most of us leave that job until there's a crisis. But my guest today, lawyer Susanna Popovic-Montag, says having your affairs in order will save your loved ones a lot of grief, fighting, and financial troubles. And wait till you hear some of the stories I heard from Zoomer magazine readers. And while most of us shy away from talking about death, Sandra Martin makes a living by doing the exact opposite. What interests me is all the things that happened in a person's life before the ultimate moment. For the past eight years, she's been the obituary writer for The Globe and Mail. She joins me to talk about her new book, Working the Deadbeat. Plus, it's B.B. King's birthday. We'll pay tribute to the great blues master with a look back on his life and some of his great music. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, Canada lost a political icon. Peter Lougheed, the former Premier of Alberta, passed away on Thursday at the age of 84. He took over the Alberta PC party in 1965 when it had no seats in the legislature. Under his leadership, the party grew quickly and Lougheed became the Premier of Alberta in 1971 with an election that saw the PCs take 49 seats. He led the province for almost 15 years until 1984. He became a provincial folk hero and a nationally recognized figure for his epic battles with Ottawa over control of Alberta's oil resources. And he nurtured the oil sands development, which has become an economic driver of the country. Lougheed created a multi-billion dollar nest egg for Alberta from oil revenues and fostered arts, culture and tourism. During the debates over patriating the Constitution, he fought for a role for the provinces and helped engineer a notwithstanding clause to ensure their rights. Do you know the difference between the normal signs of aging and symptoms of Alzheimer's? If you've listened to our program for the past few weeks, chances are you've heard our extensive interviews on the subject. However, a new report by the Alzheimer's Foundation of America finds an alarming number of caregivers can't tell the difference between the two. As a result, they may have delayed seeking proper diagnosis or missed out on early treatments. Behavioral symptoms of Alzheimer's or other dementia include irritability, anxiety, personality changes, paranoia, aggression, wandering, and sleeplessness. A report out of the UK says there's a shortage of rehab services for Zoomers there. An audit by the British Geriatric Society finds that the services in place only meet half the demand from patients who need help recovering from falls and other accidents. The report warns the shortage will likely cause delays in hospital discharges and increased readmissions. The Zoomer Advocacy Group, Age UK, is calling on the National Health Service 
to invest more. A new study on Zoomer spending in the U.S. finds that luxuries and leisure are taking a backseat to spending on education, mortgage interest, and adult kids. The study compared the purchasing habits of 45 to 64-year-olds in 1990 and 2010. During this time, the portion of disposable income spent on food, restaurants, clothing, furniture, and new cars all fell. Meanwhile, expenditures on utilities, insurance, and health were all up, as was spending on adult children. The biggest increase was in education. It was up a whopping 80% for Zoomers aged 45 to 54 and 22% for those aged 55 to 64. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The October issue of Zoomer magazine is out, and today I'm going to focus on my own column, which features an avalanche of mail I received in response to a simple proposal I made last spring. My suggestion was that we should all be required to have a document outlining our wishes for the end of our lives. It could save a lot of pain and aggravation and millions of millions of dollars spent on heroic measures. A majority of us don't have these living wills, and as a matter of fact, most of us don't even have legal powers of attorney that designate substitute decision-makers. So I decided to consult a lawyer. Susanna Popovic-Montag is managing partner at Hull & Hull. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Livy. How many people have powers of attorney and have or have attorneys, and uh, when do they get them? Well, in practice, in Canada, less than 50% of people actually have powers of attorney. And that's a very similar statistic to the number of people who don't have wills. And unfortunately, it is a very, very important document that people do underestimate the importance of that document. And the unfortunate part is that they wait too late. And in some circumstances, it may be too late to even create a power of attorney. The last thing we want to do is to be dealing with these decisions in a crisis situation. And one of the things that we very much advocate is the fact that you ought to have these conversations early and often with your family members. You want to be able to create these documents at a point in time when you are certainly capable, when you've given it thought, and you want to let your family members know what it is that you want and why it is that you've chosen these individuals. I had all of this in place. I had a will, had powers of attorney, but, you know, you have to revisit them periodically. I I had made one, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or something. And um, then I was in a crisis health situation, and then I realized, boy, you know, the will really doesn't reflect what we want. I remember a marathon session at a lawyer's office two nights before I had a huge surgery, and it was incredibly stressful. Oh, I can't imagine, Libby. That's uh, that's what we sort of call the five minutes to midnight estate planning and really one of the worst situations to be in. And your comment about revisiting powers of attorney, even if you have created them, is really, really important because circumstances change. And so we often advise our clients to review and to revisit their appointments and their powers of attorney maybe every five years. Now, when you talk about ending up in a situation where you can't create a power of attorney, I have a mother-in-law who has... Alzheimer's, there would be no way to change it now. That's so true. And at that point, what you're left with is a situation of someone actually having to go to court to get a court order to revoke that power of attorney and to have someone else appointed as what they call a guardian of that individual to make those decisions for them. And how hard is that? Well, nothing easy when you say the word court and certainly nothing inexpensive when you mention a court proceeding. 
one of the pieces, uh, a very eye-opening mail that I got was from a, a woman whose husband has dementia, and she said she is always surprised at how many everyday things she needs that power of attorney for, and she just couldn't carry on their daily lives without it. It's such a good point, and people actually underestimate how important a power of attorney for personal care really can be. Many people know that a power of attorney for finances makes sense. You want to make sure that your finances are taken care of, your assets and your bills are paid regularly. But you can't underestimate how important this document that deals with your body, your personal care decisions, is really one of the most important documents you'll ever have to create. Well, the one for finances is important too. I mean, one of the things this woman said, she said she now makes it her mission to get on her friends to make sure that they have this in place. And she says the biggest excuse she hears is, we don't need this. Everything we have is held in jointly and in common anyway. And she said, you don't realize you can't sell property that you're holding jointly without a power of attorney. And if you want to, you're going to need that court order. Absolutely. And and that's so true because we think, you know, once we've put it in joint names, we've taken care of all our estate planning, and it's really just not the case. Another <laughs> sort of the most graphically interesting response I got was from a listener who told me that he had tattooed on his chest, DNR, do not resuscitate. <laughs> and he went for a procedure where the nurse saw him without his shirt on. And she looked at this tattoo and she said, by the way, should anything happen to you, we would not follow the instructions on your chest unless it was we had it in writing in a power of attorney. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and I know many people would say, well, look, it's so clear that that's what he intended. But, you know, it may be that maybe it wasn't what he intended. It could have been a night of too much drinking and something just <laughs> happened. You, you really want to rely on a document that puts that in place for you, where you yourself can choose that substitute decision maker so that you don't have any possible problems at the end of the day. People probably can see online or wherever a, a cheap way of doing a power of attorney as opposed to going to a lawyer. What is the difference and also how much ballpark should it cost to get this type of legal work done? Great question, Libby. And, and frankly, as an estate litigator, I highly recommend these do-it-yourself kits because they make up a great part of my practice <laughs> when people do them improperly. It's going to vary from lawyer to lawyer that you go to. It'll cost you maybe a few hundred dollars to get a power of attorney in place. Usually they'll do a power of attorney for property and one for personal care at the same time. And they'll consider the possibility of doing the will because these are all three very key estate planning documents that should be done, should be revisited regularly. And at the end of the day, when you think about, you know, maybe a thousand to five thousand dollars for a comprehensive estate plan, small price to pay when you consider the cost of a litigated fight at the end if there is in fact going to be problems with the family. Okay. Well thank you so much, Susanna Popovic Montag. Thank you. You can read the full column in the October issue of Zoomer magazine. I'm Libby Snymer and you're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. We'll return in just a moment with a woman who is very comfortable talking about death. Sandra Martin has been the obituary writer for the Globe and Mail for the past eight years. Her new book features the obituaries of some of Canada's greatest citizens. She'll join me next. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. 
We've just heard about the importance of leaving our final wishes, but what about the final word on our lives? Sandra Martin, the Globe and Mail's obituary writer, is coming out with a new book, Working the Deadbeat, 50 Lives That Changed Canada. It features political icons, cultural heroes, rogues and rascals whose lives provide a social history of the 20th century. Sandra dropped by our studios earlier this week. Sandra, you say that when people learn that you're an obituary writer, they have some pretty strange reactions. Yes, there's that look of revulsion and sort of the raised eyebrows and then the jokes, the jokes. You know, uh, who's on your slab today? But I actually think that I'm writing about life, not death, because what interests me is all the things that happened in a person's life before the ultimate moment. That's what interests me. I know that my parents' generation, for instance, the obituaries were the first thing they would turn to in the newspaper. And it's highly popular in the Globe and Mail. And when uh, the paper introduced Lives Lived, which are obituaries of people who are not famous, it became one of the best-read sections in the paper. Yes, Lies Lived are written by friends and family, and so they are, they're often quite startling and quite revealing, but they tend to be a bit more gentle. I mean, I'm a journalist, so when I write an obituary, I'm not writing a eulogy, I'm not writing a memorial, I am writing the life and assessing it, warts and all, about what this person's achievements were, failings, and trying to account for the entire life. Way back in the dark ages, when I had my first job for a wire service, that was one of the things that we had to do. We had to prepare obituaries for famous people in our area. And I remember the first time I was given this job, I was horrified. I think that's the way it used to be in the in the old days, but it's not the way it is now. I mean, what happens now is uh, someone actually, it's not like a profile, but somebody is going to go to the kind of trouble you would go to for a profile. A lot of interviews, trying to get an interview in advance with the person you're writing about. Um, it's just a, it's a literary form. The idea of having a canned obituary in the drawer, the, or the morgue as they call it, which you just pull out and slap on the page, has really gone the way of the dodo. I mean, certainly I would keep writing until an editor demands my copy because you want to make sure you've got it to be as, as clear, as perceptive as possible. There's an interesting uh, part in the book where you say when you started, you used to tell them that it was background or it was for a piece on file. Well, when I asked, when the Globe and Mail approached me about being an obituary writer, they said, would you be willing to do interviews in advance? And I said, uh, yes, but what do you say to the person? And I was told you say, oh, you're just preparing an interview for the files. So I did that once, only once, because I realized halfway through the interview that this was really not the way I wanted to perform as a journalist. And uh, at the end of the interview, the subject said, um, when's it going to run? <laughs> that was a perfectly reasonable question, and so I've never done that again. I just thought it was wrong. What did you say? I said, I don't know. I'll, let, I'll get back to you. And in fact, it didn't run for several more years. Which, 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 <laughs> you didn't get back to him either. Well, I did because I talked to him about a bunch of other things in the meantime, because that's my point. If you write it, they don't die. So what did you tell people after that? I tell people, I mean, of course, now they know who's calling, right? So, and it's actually, it's not the people themselves who are squeamish about it. It's the people who surround them. They don't want you to talk. They think it might be upsetting. But a person who is, you know, elderly or has been ill, they know. They know what's going to happen. They are, they're ready and they're willing to talk because what I want to talk about is their life. So now I say, I would like to interview you. It'll be for your obituary. 
at such time as it may become necessary. Do you find that people are telling you things they wouldn't otherwise because they know it's not going to be published until their death? They will talk about things that they don't want to talk about. For example, the poet P.K. Page did talk to me about her wartime affair with the poet uh, F.R. Scott. Now, these are 50 lives. How did you choose these 50 people? My publisher had said that she would rather I started in 2000. So I thought, 2000? Wow, that's before I was writing obituaries. So I began to think, who would I have written about if I were writing in 2000? And then I came up with a list of extraordinary names, such as Pierre Trudeau, Mordecai Richler, Rocket Richard. And then I began thinking about lives and how I would pick lives that said something about this country. And that's the way I did it. They're not all famous. Some of them you will not have heard from. So I begin with a young man who came here um, with a string around his neck because he was Chinese and he came here uh, with a cousin. They had no names they were, and they paid the head tax. So I wanted to talk about Chinese who had come here, who had worked in this country and who, were, who suffered under racism. If you had to pick one who had the most impact on Canada... Could you do it? I think that would be very easy. It's uh, Pierre Trudeau. He changed our country tremendously, and that's why he's actually the longest life I've written about in the book. Okay. Sandra Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Working the Deadbeat will be in stores later this month. In the meantime, you can get it through www.houseofanancy.com. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. That's the music of B.B. King. In just a moment, we'll celebrate the living legend's 87th birthday with a look back at his life and music. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time now for the International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Ed Asner's back on Broadway for the first time in 20 years. The 82-year-old Emmy Award-winning actor stars in a dark comedy called Grace alongside Paul Rudd. It deals with some questions that everybody faces. And uh, so I think it's relatable. I also think that some of the characters are extreme in that they're kind of interesting to watch because they're uh, maybe not like we are. The story follows a young Florida couple as they attempt to open a chain of gospel-themed motels. To London, where a best-selling novel has come to life. The curious incident of the dog in the nighttime is on stage at the National Theatre. It's the tale from one boy's unique perspective. And if you're traveling around Ukraine, the city of Lviv becomes the center of European literature this weekend. Popular writers take part in the annual festival at Petoskey's Palace. I'm Jane Brown, and that's your International Arts Date Book. Thanks, Jane. That's the sound of a man who has mastered his instrument, B.B. King. Today, the legendary bluesman is celebrating his 87th birthday, and considering he still plays around 100 concerts a year, he's what you could call an uber-zoomer. 
It all started when he was 12 years old and his cousin gave him his first guitar. He would spend years practicing. King's first big break came as a performer and disc jockey on the famous radio station WDIA in Memphis, Tennessee. He went by the nickname The Beale Street Blues Boy, which was later shortened to Blues Boy and finally Just B.B. In 1949, he began recording songs with the Los Angeles-based RPM Records. Many of his early recordings were produced by Sam Phillips, who would later start Sun Records. It didn't take long before B.B. King was a household name. In the early 50s, he dominated blues music with recordings like Three O'Clock Blues, Every Day I Have the Blues, and Sweet Little Angel. But his popularity reached new heights in 1969, with a track he recorded for the album Completely Well. It earned him a Grammy for Best Male Vocal R&B Performance. Here it is. The thrill is gone. That was a bit of The Thrill is Gone, recorded by B.B. King for his 1969 album, Completely Well. Today, King celebrates his 87th birthday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll be back next Sunday when we once again keep you up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. See you then. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.